We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Well, it's very good to have all of you with us today. This is a really special day in the life of our church for a number of reasons. We're a new church, and we've never done Palm Sunday together, so that, that's exciting. We uh, also are baptizing Sarah Coleman. That's a very exciting thing. What a great, great day. I want you to think about something before we look at these passages of Scripture that Andrew just read to us. I want you to think about how we interpret what people say. Think about when your wife or your husband says something to you or your child or your boss or your friend or your enemy. There's different ways you can interpret You can misinterpret, right? You can interpret it rightly. The Bible is a very complex book. And those those of us who've been raised in church, we forget that, I think. One, One time I was talking with a very close friend of mine who had never read the Bible. And he said, what in the world is this thing? You know, is it one book? Is it a bunch of books? Where do I start? Do I start at the beginning? Do I... I mean, think about that. Those of you who've grown up in church and it's just kind of always been a part of your life, like a a friend, you know. But the Bible's very complex. I mean, there are parts of the Bible that when you read, you're reminded this book was written 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago by an entirely different culture with an entirely different set of rules for, for how to write and how to communicate. There's a very famous secular Jewish literary scholar by the name of Meyer Sternberg. He hates Christianity. Anytime he gets a chance to write about it, he says really, really negative things about it. But he's a brilliant interpreter of the Old Testament. In a number of his writings, he's made this statement. He said the Old Testament is very complex, but fundamentally it's foolproof. And what he means by that is true also of the New Testament, the the whole Bible. What he's saying is that there are a lot of details that, you know, we get into certain corners of the Bible and our mind just kind of stops, right? And we're overwhelmed. But what Meyer Sternberg is saying about the Old Testament is true of the whole Bible. Its basic point is foolproof. What it's basically saying, you don't have to master every nook and cranny. There's a very famous atheist in America right now by the name of Christopher Hitchens. Maybe you've heard of him. In 2007, he wrote a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And he's gone on a big famous kind of speaking circuit all around the United States. A few months ago, he was in Seattle and he was being interviewed by Marilyn Sewell, and she was the longtime pastor of the First Unitarian Church of Seattle. And in the course of this interview, the most amazing conversation occurs between an atheist and a minister. Now, he's there as a name brand atheist. You know, he gets paid to be an atheist and to write these books and all this kind of stuff. And she gets paid to be a minister. You know, she's a professional holy person. She gets paid for that kind of stuff. So in the middle of this interview, 
I, I just, here's a copy of the transcript. I want to read you a question she asked and, and his answer. She says, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian and I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make a distinction between fundamentalist faith and literal religion? Christopher Hitchens, the world-renowned atheist, responds, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. (laughs) This is the atheist talking to the minister. So the minister's response is, well, let's go someplace else. When I was in seminary, I was particularly drawn to the work of theologian Paul Tillich. He shocked people by describing the traditional God as you might, as as a matter of fact, as an invincible tyrant. For Tillich, God is the, quote, ground of being. It's his response to say Freud's belief that religion is mere wish fulfillment and comes from the human sphere of death. What do you think of Tillich's concept of God? The atheist responds. I would classify that under the heading of statements that have no meaning at all. (laughs) Christianity, remember, is really founded by St. Paul, not Jesus. That's Hitchens' opinion. Paul says very clearly that if it is not true that Jesus rose from the dead, then we, the Christians, are of all people the most unhappy. If none of that's true and you seem to believe it's not, I don't have any problem with you. And she responds, well, I agree with almost everything you say, but I still consider myself a Christian and a person of faith. And Hitchens then says, do you mind if I ask you a question? She's interviewing him. He says, faith. What do you have faith in? Faith in the resurrection? And she says, The way I believe in the resurrection is I believe that one can go from a death in this life in the sense of being dead to the world and dead to other people. And you can be resurrected to a new life. When I preach about Easter and the resurrection, it's only a metaphor. Christopher Hitchens says, I hate to say it since we've hardly just met. But maybe you're simply living on the inheritance of a monstrous fraud that was preached to millions of people as literal truth, as what you call the ground of being. She says, times change, and you know, people's beliefs change, and I don't believe that you have to be a fundamentalist and a literalist to be a Christian, but you do. You're, you're a fundamentalist. Hitchens says, well, I'm sorry. Fundamentalist simply means those who think that the Bible is a serious book and should take it seriously. Marilyn Sewell says, I take it very seriously. I have my grandmother's Bible, and I still read it, but I don't take it as literal truth. It's a metaphorical truth, the stories, the narratives. That's what's important. Christopher Hitchens, I would say, at least is being fair to Scripture. Now, he disagrees with it. He doesn't believe it, but he's captured its foolproof center. That at the center of the Bible, you can disagree, right? But you don't have a right to misinterpret. I... 
You know, if I do that to my wife, if Christopher Hitchens does that with his publisher in his contract, society breaks down, right? Christopher Hitchens rejects fundamentally the claims of Christianity. And he's calling Marilyn Sewell to be honest about that. Now, that takes us right to the heart of the passages that were read in the foyer uh, by, John, by James and by Spencer and then that Andrew just read to us. If you have a Bible, look with me at Luke chapter 19. Let me show you what I mean. Let me show you how Christopher Hitchens' interpretation of the heart of Christianity is really a simple, foolproof interpretation that is right there on the surface of Scripture. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. Now, for those of you who have been worshiping with us since the fall, we've been working our way through the book of Luke. We took a couple of times to step out to some other passages. But all but two Sundays since the fall, we've been in the book of Luke. We've just been walking our way through it. I've mentioned to you a few times that the hinge of Luke's gospel is Luke chapter 9, verse 51. You don't have to turn there, but it's this. It says that Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. And from Luke 9, 51, all the way to the passage that was read to us in the foyer, which is called the triumphal entry, and we we not only read it, but we enacted it. From Luke 9.51 all the way to Luke 19.28, we call that the travel narrative. It's the biggest chunk of scripture in Luke's gospel. And it's not a straight geographical shot, but it's a pilgrimage. It's Jesus at a turning point in his ministry and saying, from here on out, everything goes toward Jerusalem. I am setting my face like flint. You cannot deter me. I'm headed to the cross. And so we've had the cross in the middle of our sanctuary in our way, because that's what Jesus has been headed toward for a number of weeks now. Last Sunday, we looked at the passage where Mary washed Jesus's feet. Now, that occurred chronologically yesterday to the passage that we're reading tonight. And what's happened is between last week and this week and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday of the coming week, All of the sudden, Christians all around the world, they not only read these passages, they slow down, they take them one day at a time, and they reenact them. And so tonight, we're at the passage called the triumphal entry. This is is what everything, not just in Luke's gospel, has been building toward, but this is what the entire Bible has been building toward. This is the climactic moment. So it says in verse 28, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, back in chapter 9, 51, he set his face like flint toward. Finally, he's there. Now, I want you to notice something about the next verse. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mouth that is called Olivet, all of a sudden we've got all of these geographical markers. If this was a film... What the director is doing is slowing narrative time down. He's slowing the pace of the way he tells the story down by giving you exact markers along the way. Think of it, if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 1, like the first few days of creation. Day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5. They blaze by. 
And then all of a sudden you get to day six and there are more words dedicated to the sixth day of creation than all of the other days. Why? Because on day six, humans are created and the narrator is slowing the plot down. He's slowing the narration down to do what? To draw attention, to focus you, to focus. It's like a zoom lens on a camera. Instead of getting a panoramic, all of a sudden we're... The narrator is saying, slow down. Now, why does Luke, the narrator, want you to slow down in verse 29? Because he wants you to catch very carefully what's coming next. Into verse 29. He sent two of the disciples. Saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it. And bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying this colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. What I hope you saw is that five times he mentions untie or tie the colt being tied up. He did not give us the name of the village and he did not give us the name of the disciples because those aren't the important details. There is something very important, evidently, for Luke about this cult, right? Five times it's repetitive, it's redundant. It feels like either bad literature or brilliant literature. Why is Luke the narrator who's thinking back through the lens of a long time? He's sifting historical documents. He's choosing what he includes in his story and he's choosing what he leads out. Why is he focusing on this particular point? Because go back to the passage that Andrew read to us out of Zechariah. If you don't want to turn there, you don't have to. Zechariah chapter 9. Now listen, listen really close to what Zechariah written hundreds of years, centuries before. Listen to what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he. How is he coming? Humbled and mounted on a donkey. See, what Luke is saying is that Jesus is not a cipher. He's not just any old dude you can fill up with any old identity. He has an identity that is determined by hundreds of years of God working in the life of this people we call the Jews. For hundreds of years, God has been at work. For century and millennia. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means he made everything that exists. And then he made humans. And like David said in Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of? What is the son of man that you care for him? And yet you've set him a little lower than the angels. You put him over your whole creation. On that sixth day, God not only creates humans, he creates us in his image. And then he says... Everything that I've ever made now belongs to you. You are to it as I was to it. I formed it. I fashioned it. I developed it. Now you form it. You fashion it. You develop it. And humans are so powerful. When we sinned, it broke it. Now just do a little mind game with me. You know, the way Einstein 
figured things out is he did these thought experiments. You know, if a guy's in an elevator and he's going down really fast, it's time, you know, let's do a thought experiment. If two cockroaches had sinned, would creation have broken? Now, it's purely theoretical because that's not possible for cockroach. But what I'm saying to you, the fact that humans had the ability to shatter creation points to the profundity of humans. You see what I'm saying? When Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing God said to them was, cursed is the ground because of you. The dirt is broken because of you. And then in Romans, Paul said all of creation is groaning under the weight of sin. It's longing for what? The redemption of the sons of God. It's longing for us to be glorified back into the pristine image of God. Why? Because creation is organically connected to us. Because why? Because we are the high point of God's creation. So when Adam and Eve sinned, God said, where are you, Adam? Where are you? It's the heart of a lover longing for his beloved. It's not that God lost his omniscience. It's not that God couldn't find them. It's that God said, suddenly there's a gap. And so when all of a sudden between Adam and Eve and God, there was this gap between God and his most prized creation. God set into effect a long series of events to win us back to himself. So he entered into this unique relationship with Abraham and he said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your children and your children's children and their children and their children. And I'm going to create a nation out of you. And I'm going to have such a unique relationship with you as a nation that you're going to show the whole world what it looks like to be rightly related to me. And Israel said, yes. And at the foot of Mount Sinai, they married each other. And Israel vowed to God that God was was her husband. And God vowed to Israel that Israel was his wife. And Israel was a harlot. Over and over, she broke her marriage vows. There's a word in the Old Testament. It's in Hebrew. It can't be translated into English. It's hesed. It's translated in different ways in the Bible. It's translated steadfast love. That was the passage at a psalm that... Andrew read. The best translation for it is the book of Hosea. The man who's married to a woman and she leaves him to become a prostitute and he goes and he buys her out of sexual slavery. That's Hesed. That's steadfast love. That's love that goes beyond all rights. It's the love of the father running out to the prodigal son and humiliating himself when he shouldn't have done that. It's the love of that same father running out to the elder son and humiliating himself to beg him to come into the party. It's the love that so shattered Mary's heart that she shattered a vial of perfume that cost one year's wages to shower onto the feet of Jesus because she was overwhelmed by this steadfast love. And God said all along, even if you're faithless, I will be faithful. And one day I'm going to send my own son to fix all of this, to do for you, Israel, what you can't even do for yourself And that's Luke 19, 28 and following. That's why it's the climax. That's why Luke says five times, untie the donkey, untie the donkey, untie the donkey, untie the donkey. Because he's saying this is the fulfillment of that very long story. This is a steadfast God. This is a God who loves us down through the centuries, even though we abandon him, even though we mess up, even though all of us are sitting here 
guilty, rotten scoundrels, even though we're all sitting here and we pledge our love to God at the base of Mount Sinai. And in a few minutes, Sarah Coleman is going to come up here and vow herself to God. And you're going to renew your marriage vows to God. And we're going to leave here and we're going to all play the harlot. And his love is steadfast. That's why he says five times cult, because it's that God who's riding into Jerusalem. Verse 35, they brought the colt to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. The amazing thing here is that up until that point, everything they've done has been an exact fulfillment of his very specific instructions. But he gave them no instructions to sit on the colt. They took it upon themselves. Why did they do it? Because they were interpreting this moment in light of Zechariah 9. They are saying, Jesus, we know now you are the one. And by Jesus allowing them to put him on the colt, what is Jesus saying? I'm the one. Look what happens next. As they rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Why did they spread their cloaks on the road? Because throughout the Old Testament, that's what they did for kings entering Jerusalem at a yearly renewal ceremony. They're saying, you're the long lost king. You're finally the one. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, a whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so when we look back at the passage, Psalm 118, listen to these words. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. What are they saying? They're saying this guy is the Messiah. This he is the fulfillment of a psalm that was written centuries and centuries and centuries ago. He is God right here, right now. In fact, it is so scandalous. Look how the religious leaders respond. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why should they rebuke? Why should he rebuke the disciples? Because the disciples are calling him God. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic or Lord. Jesus lets him call him that. Look what he says in the next verse. Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. What's he saying? They're right. In other words, a foolproof reading of the Bible is that Jesus claims to be God. Now, either he's lying. He doesn't believe it. He's just a liar. Or he's crazy. He's a lunatic. He actually believes it. Like a lot of people who believe that they're George Washington or, I don't know, the, the big marshmallow man or Jesus. But because they're not and they actually believe that they are, that qualifies as lunatic. The third option is. He's actually the Lord. And at least Hitchens. Is admitting that. And he's saying. I believe he really believes what he's saying, and I just think he's wrong. What's interesting about this passage is that even here at the climax, God himself in the flesh entering into Jerusalem, we see there are two ways you can respond. You can reject it. Or you can accept it. You can be like the Pharisees, the religious leaders. You can say that's wrong. Or you can be like the disciples. You can say that's right. And really in this room tonight, there's only 
those two kinds of people. Those who reject it and those who believe it. I mean, in this room tonight, there are Baptists and Episcopalians and Anglicans and none of the above. There's men and women and children and teenagers, really good-looking people. And, no, I'm just, But really, there's only two kinds of people in this room. That's, that's at the height of all of this. All of a sudden, Luke, the narrator, comes crashing into the party and says, there are people that reject this. Why? Because God is a God of love and he will let you reject it. Now, here's what's interesting. One last thing. Jesus said, I tell you, if, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You know what he's saying? All of creation is tied into what I'm doing. I'm not just here to forgive you of your sins. I'm here to heal the cosmos. Remember what I said earlier? Adam and Eve, when they sinned, the first thing God said to them is, the ground is broken. And now what is Jesus saying? The ground is being healed. That's right at the heart of the Christian faith. That is the Christian faith. That God created everything. Sin broke everything. God married himself to a group of people to fix everything. And one day, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns... Every square inch of the cosmos, not just the human soul, but everything will be made new again. Look what look what it says. The people said, blessed in verse 38 is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You know what they're saying? Peace in heaven. They're saying the intention of heaven is to bring peace. The agenda of God in Christ is to bring peace. Heaven is the domain in which God dwells. Peace in heaven. The peace of heaven is coming back to the earth. And that's why every year we process in and we relive these moments. Because all of the cosmos is being healed. In just a minute, Sarah Coleman is going to come forward to be baptized. And when she does... You're going to have a chance if you're already a Christian, if you've already been baptized to recommit yourself to the God that is healing everything. I'm sure there are some in this room that are not really Christians. I don't mean really religious and I don't mean really, you know, moral. I mean, there's only two kinds of us in this room and your Christianity is not predicated on your church membership. Your Christianity is a function of where you stand in that crowd. Do you recognize he is, him as Lord? And if you've never done that before, then I invite you when we commit ourselves together with Sarah Coleman to the baptismal vows, if you've never done that before, do that for the first time. You know why? Because all of heaven is on the edge of its seats rooting for you to come home to God. Let's pray. Father, for your word, we give you praise and we give you thanks. And I ask God that if there are any in this room who do not truly believe that you are the Christ and have not followed you by yielding their whole lives to you, I pray that you would give them faith. For those of us who have loved you and have given ourselves to you already, Refresh our faith. Amen.